we pray that tonight you will, um, by your spirit, move our hearts to respond to it. Uh, yeah, and, and as we understand it better, understand what this washing feet um, picture means for us, as, as Jesus does it with his disciples, um, we'll, be, we'll be moved, not only moved, but we'll be convicted uh, to consider what that looks like for us as your people, uh, as your church. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Uh, the other day I saw a pop news article pop up on my Facebook. It was about a famous Liverpool football player. Who follows a soccer here? Boris. Thanks. So we have one person here, but he was, uh, I've got the, the image that popped up on the screen here, and there's a zoom into his phone, okay? His phone had a cracked screen. Now this guy, his name is Sadio Mane, is that right, Boris? Uh, he makes millions of dollars. He's play for, he's play, he plays for Liverpool. Um, but he doesn't even bother to fix his own phone screen. Uh, he chooses to live in humble circumstances. Uh, this guy, he grew up in, in Senegal, in Africa, and in an interview, he once shared this, I was hungry and I had to work in the field. I survived hard times, played football barefooted. I did not have an education and many other things, but today, with what I earn, thanks to football, I can help my people. I built schools, a stadium, we provide clothes, shoes, food for people who are in extreme poverty. In addition, I give 70 euros per month to all people in a very poor region of Senegal, which contributes to their family economy. I do not need to display luxury cars, luxury homes, trips, and even planes. I prefer that my people receive a little of what life has given me. What encouragement, hey? For someone who earns millions of dollars, it's inspiring, isn't it? With his career as a superstar athlete, he uses his privilege to help the underprivileged in his country, to help his people. It's inspiring, but perhaps what's more inspiring is when you see it with, with people in our own lives. I don't know if you know people in your life who are doing well, quite well, and they continue to still live an average lifestyle. You know, their, their car or home is average. They're making bank, but you admire them. You know they're using their wealth to help others, those who are in need, and choosing a humble lifestyle. They'll use their place of power and privilege to be someone who, who stands with others, who walks with others, not just with their money, but their time and energy to help others too. And our hearts, we're in awe of them. I mean, this photo of this dude's cracked iPhone went viral because it was so unexpected. It doesn't seem to make sense. Yet there's something that resonates deep within us, and perhaps more and more of our genera generation is realizing this, realizing that the shallow shallowness of our world, that power and privilege doesn't always equal good, that often privilege and power equals injustice and abuse, but also that maybe there's something wired into us that sees greatness as so much more than just status and wealth. Maybe, just maybe, our generation is, is drawn to seeking answers to what greatness truly looks like. I wanted to say, as we, as a church, uh, through this passage in John 13, will we be able to help our world see where and how we define greatness as God defines and displays it for us? See, the Bible reading today uh, in John 13 shows us something extraordinary about power and privilege and how Jesus reveals what true greatness looks like uh, in the simple act of washing his disciples' feet. But a bit of context, I think, is really important. Uh, last year, we looked at John. If you were here with us last year in 2019, we looked at John 1 to 4, the beginning of the year. In the, towards the end of the year, we looked at John uh, 5 to, to 11, uh, or 5 to 12. We're in 13 now. Uh, Jesus is with his disciples, 
and they're in Jerusalem. And in previous chapters, we saw Jesus perform miracles, do some amazing things. At this point, and for the next four chapters in John's Gospel, uh, it's what is known as the upper room discourse. They're in this upper room. He's with his disciples, and he's serving them, he's teaching them, he eats with them, and he prays with them. And, and there's so much we're going we're gonna to learn from Jesus in, this com- in the coming weeks as they feast together. We get an insight into this upper room discourse, a peek into what the disciples themselves experienced when they were with Jesus in his last hours before his crucifixion. Now, this, this, this should fascinate us, okay? Because knowing that these were his last hours, how would you spend them? If you knew tomorrow you were going to get crucified on a cross, how would you spend your last hours with your friends, with your family? Jesus here, he's with his squad, right? The 12 disciples. And he's aware that one of them, one of them in that room is going to betray him. But let's hear more. Let's, if you have your Bibles open, follow along with me. I'm going to read it again. Verse 1. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. All right, so we're told this is the time of Passover, a celebration that Israel would participate to remember the, the great salvation story from Egypt. We looked at this in Exodus last year, if you remember. The Passover was this great celebration where they'd eat a big meal, they'd feast together, and remember the great salvation that God has done for them in rescuing them from slavery. Now, you can read about this Passover meal that Jesus is having with his disciples in Luke chapter 22. There's a parallel story happening there in Luke's gospel. But what's really interesting, read about it in your own time, but what's really interesting in Luke's account of this situation in this upper room, they're breaking bread and they're pouring wine, right? And so that's the Last Supper as we know it here, the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper as we know it. But in Luke chapter 22, I'll, I'll read a few verses. This is what it says. It gives us an interesting clue, right? A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be greatest. Jesus said to them, The kings uh, of the Gentiles lord over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors, but you are not to be like that. And said, The greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. So you got a bit of context there from Luke chapter 22, right? Like they're having the the Lord's Supper together, they're, they're breaking bread, having wine, and this happens in that situation. They're having a dispute. And so John is here writing the gospel to us, helping us see it from his perspective. Basically, he can see the picture in front of him, Jesus illustrating what this, how this principle from Luke 22 about being the greatest, how this plays out. He shows them what greatness looks like, doesn't he? I love how John puts it. Jesus knew he had power, right? Isn't that what it says in verse 3? Jesus knew he had this power. He, knew he, had, he knows his status in the universe. He came from God. He was returning to God. All things were under his power. But as the meal progressed, he got up, took off his outer clothing, wrapped the towel around his waist. Jesus, Jesus who was there at creation, creating, maintaining, sustaining the world we live in. And this Jesus, he doesn't come wielding a scepter and sword. He comes with a towel around his waist. He gets down on his knees to serve his disciples. And this is a beautiful picture of how Jesus withholds power and privilege to serve and sacrifice 
He withholds power and privilege to serve and sacrifice in love to his people. And in doing so, he, he's demonstrating to his disciples, to us, a, a really a transformed view of greatness. Greatness isn't seen in one who has the most wealth or has the biggest army of followers or likes on your Instagram. Greatness is seen in the upper room, where Jesus, who has been given all majesty and power, comes with a towel around his waist to get his hands dirty, to wash the feet of his disciples. Now, you might have read this passage a hundred times. You might have heard it read before, right? You might have been in churches where they practice this even. You might have seen people sit down, others come along with a tub of water and literally wash, wash feet. You might have seen that or experienced it yourself, this act of love and service to each other, giving and receiving, to know what Jesus and his disciples went through that night, just to have a bit of a feel. And although it's a nice gesture and, and a small snippet of what the experience is, I really don't think we can capture the gravity of this situation just by reenacting what happened. You see, to the original audience, for you living in this culture in the Middle East in the first century, this scene is all wrong. It's like you're living in the upside down. It's completely outrageous, even offensive. It would be completely beneath the title and status of who Jesus is to do something like this. He's their teacher. They call him rabbi. He's their leader, the one they call master. They're his followers, his disciples, his students. And you see, the role of washing feet in that culture, it wasn't for the host of the house. Husbands wouldn't even want their wives to do it. It was the servant or the slave that would do it, the lowest-ranking slave. Some, I, I, I've, read in, I've read that some in Jewish culture thought it was even below their own slave's job to do, that they would require a Gentile to do it, a foreigner. That's how beneath them this job was. Why? Because it was filth. We're talking the sandals generation here, right? It wasn't because it was a fashion statement like those who wear Crocs or Birkenstocks. I know many of you do. This was the footwear of the day. This is what everyone wore. And they didn't have roads or footpaths like we, did, we do today. It was dusty, dirty, dank, with animal dung everywhere. And you'd go into people's houses with your filthy feet. And you know in that culture, right, you, you eat a bit, you, you, you hang out together, and you recline. Do you know what that means? It's not like, you know, in a lazy chair, lazy boy chair. When you recline, it's like you're lying down on the couch. You know what happens when you're lying down? You know what's at eye level? Someone else's feet. Someone else's stinking, dirty, long toenailed feet. You can imagine the toe jam, right? It's cringeworthy. And last week I shared with you, I shared with you how I have the standard of cleanliness in my house that I'd ask politely for you to remove your shoes before you enter, all right? Because I don't know where your shoes have been. I know where my floors have been. I don't know where your shoes have been. Well, if I was living back then, I'd say, oh, please take off your feet before you enter, <laughs> if you could. Because I don't know what you've stepped in today. But you can't remove your feet. You have to wash them. And that job, that filthy, slimy, stinky job, is for the slave of the house to do. Now, you've got the rabbi, the teacher, your master, the miracle worker, the one they devoted their lives to serve and follow Jesus with a towel wrapped around his waist, with water ready to wash. But even more so, we should feel the weight of this. He's the son of God. He's part of the triune Godhead, the Trinity, right? He has a legitimate right to have others serve him. He's of heavenly royalty. In heaven, he's probably got angels serving him. Angels that can bring him that perfect cup of coffee. 
getting it just right. Angels that can probably give him massages and pedicures, style his hair right every time. I'm making that all up. I don't know what angels do. But I imagine it'd be great to have an angel servant, right? At the very least, surely angels would be on their knees worshipping him. Yet what do we see in this scene? Jesus, the Son of God, get on his knees serving mere average human beings. The immortal divine serving mortal beings. He takes on the role of a servant to others. See, students wouldn't do that for their teacher. Only the lowest ranking slave would wash feet. Disciples would never do this job. But Jesus displayed greatness in this moment through humble service. He went from the heavens to the earth. He went from his seat to the floor. No one could conceive of a God who would not only join humanity, walk amongst humans, but get on his knees to wash the feet of his people. Even the feet of the one who will betray his trust. Isn't that amazing? Paul writes about this extraordinary truth in, in Philippians 2. I've got it on the screen as well. Philippians 2 talks about Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. You see what Jesus shows us here, this act of being a servant to his disciples, it's pointing us to a greater truth, isn't it? His humility is going to ultimately be seen when he goes to the cross. He'll serve his disciples, his people, you and me, by dying on a cross. And that's precisely what he hints at next. In, in, back in John 13, verse 6, it says this, He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you'll understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said not everyone was clean. See, what's interesting is we've been told by John that Judas has made up his mind already to betray Jesus. The devil's influenced him. Where Peter here, who seems to be oblivious, still to what Jesus came to do, all Peter knows is, Jesus, I'm going to follow you no matter what. And so you've got this outrageous situation here where Jesus, the teacher, is sitting down washing feet and Peter's like, why are you doing this? And this is where Jesus says, you won't understand, soon you will. And he's speaking about this act of service, washing feet, that snapshot of what kind of servant leader he is. He will serve his people till death on a cross. And by doing so, he'll achieve something only Jesus can do. Forgive and remove the sin of humanity, past, present, and future. Verse 8, Peter's like, no, you won't wash my feet. He's thinking, you're not my slave. It's beneath you to do this. He's probably feeling ashamed at this point, thinking, what in the world? And Jesus is like, no, you need to be washed by me. You won't be clean. You'll have no part with me. You'll have no inheritance, no part in, part in glory. Eternal life is what he's saying. He's moving from the literal to the spiritual. And Peter still, understand, you know, understandably, he's living in the moment still, isn't he? He doesn't know what we know. He doesn't know that this, this washing feet idea, it's, it's an outward sign. An outward sign of an inner reality. The inner reality that he's been cleansed of his sin. 
You see, Peter, he's got this devotion where he'll follow Jesus to the ends of the earth. Peter, he wants a relationship. Judas, he's ready to reject Jesus. Peter wants a relationship. And Peter thinks he's going to get cut off. So he's like, wash all of me. Wash, wash my hands and my head as well. And Jesus' response is so cryptic, but hey, you're already clean, Peter. Not everyone in the room is clean, but you are. But let me wash your feet anyways to show you that my death at the cross is how I'm going to accomplish that washing away of your sins. That's what Jesus is doing. Peter, he sounds like a bit of a character. He's like he's missed the point. And I love that about Peter. He makes mistakes, but he'll still put himself out there. In the same room, we have Judas. He's willing to hide in the shadows. He'd cut himself off from the relationship with Jesus. Jesus, he's washing the feet of his betrayer, but Judas, he's made up his mind. He chooses to reject the relationship. And both greed and the devil get a foothold in his heart. And we listen to the story, and whether we're Peter or whether we're Judas in the story, we've got a God who will reach out to us. This is what matters. We've got a God who will wash our feet. He will serve us by dying on a cross for our sins. Whether we're, whether we're the one who rejects him or whether we're the one who gets it wrong, he invites you and I to have our sins cleansed by him. I don't know where you're at with God. I don't know if you've rejected him and consistently rejects him in your life. I don't know if you're the religious like Peter and you want, you want to keep... Uh, following Jesus, but, but you, you think you need to earn it by doing more and being religious. But for all of us, we all gonna, we're all going to make mistakes before God. But you know what? Jesus still invites us to know him. He invites us in to be cleansed. And I know the temptation for Peter would have been, hey, I want to clean, I want everything to be, I want to clean myself even. We don't need our feet washed. We, want, we, we think we don't need our feet washed, but we, we want religion to save us. So we'll clean up ourselves. We'll tick off all the boxes. We'll We'll find our little saviors in this world to, to make us feel like we're worthy. We'll put God in this box and, hey, if the world is impressed with us, then God will be impressed with us too. Look at how great I am. I scrub up so well. Look at how clean I am. Surely God will love me. Jesus says, only I can make you clean. Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. And others, some of us here, we might feel dirty before God. Some of us feel like we're defiled, that our feet are unwashable. <laughs> the stains won't come out. I'm broken, and that's just who I am. God can't fix me. No one can. And so we continue to pursue, to live a lifestyle of sin. We continue to chase after it, because all we know is this life of feeling dirty. Maybe it was the sin of another that makes you feel like you're unwanted, you're not good enough. You've got past trauma that stops you from coming before God. I mean, the shame of your past, the addictions, the abuse, you've identified yourself as unwashable. And you think, God can't save me. All we know, is, and all you know is a cycle of sin and guilt. It's become your identity. But friends, Jesus doesn't leave us, leave us there. Whether we're the fool or whether we're the traitor, whether we feel dirty, defiled, or broken, Jesus continues to wash our feet. He washes our souls. I love that Paul echoes a sentiment. In, in Titus, he writes, I've got this on the screen as well, Titus chapter 3. When the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, 
we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. You see, by Jesus' own initiative, his grace, his generosity, his mercy on sinners, he goes to the cross to serve his people. For those that have spent their lives in sin, rejecting a relationship with God, Jesus says, I must wash you. And the call is to surrender, isn't it? Surrender our past and present and future. Surrender all of ourselves, bring it all before the cross of Christ. None of us here are too far away. None of us here are too unclean, too dirty before God. We're all on the same equal playing field before Him. And before God, we, need, we all need our sins forgiven. We all need to be washed. We all need the cross, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. And that's it, isn't it? The ultimate display of human history, where the divine Son of God takes on humanity and dies a human death to take on the sin of humanity and experience, it, experience hell for us. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21, I think this is the last reference I have for you today. It says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Isn't that beautiful? At the cross, that's where we see greatness and power meet. And maybe that's why pictures of superstars with cracked screens pull on our heart screen. Because in all of us, God wants us to recognize what true greatness actually looks like. So what he does is he leaves these breadcrumbs in our world, you know, and we look at those breadcrumbs, they point us back to him. He wired our hearts to recognize and be in awe of what humility is, to be in awe of compassion, to be in awe of mercy and grace. And when we see that happen in our world, it grips our hearts in awe, doesn't it? All those characteristics. Greatness ultimately lies in those who have great power but wields great compassion. And just perhaps the human heart that cares and loves and sees greatness portrayed in this way is to help us go back to the one who created us. A heart that acknowledges the one who is truly, ultimately greater than the rest. The one, the Son of God, with his power and privilege, humbled himself to die on a cross for the sinner. Greatness is shown in loving, humble service, isn't it? But Jesus goes on, verse 12, When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes, returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. You see, Jesus calls us to be transformed and follow his example. He's transformed our view of greatness through service, his, his ministry to us, his sacrifice that cleansed us. But the third thing he wants us to see is calls us to be transformed and to follow his example. No teacher is greater than his master. Be like Jesus, love others, serve others, minister to us, make sacrifices in humility. Why? Let's go back to the start of the passage. Why did Jesus even do all this? Yet, yes, it was to send an example of greatness to his disciples, but what drove him? Verse 1, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave the world and go to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world. He loved them to the end. Friends, love looks like humble sacrifice for your people. Look around. These are your people. This is your tribe, your church family. Jesus says, love them. Yeah, you could get on your knees, you can get a towel, you can wash each other's stinky feet. That's fine if you want to do that. Feel free to give me a foot massage afterwards. 
But to be honest, washing the feet was something extraordinary in this moment because it was the one who did it. It was Jesus who washed the feet of his disciples. It was Jesus who in love served his people all the way till death on a cross, something we can't do. Only he could. We'd be missing the point if we tried to reenact it. But he does say, wash each other's feet. He does say, follow after me. Be driven by love for one another and serve each other as Christ has loved you and wash your feet. It's an action, isn't it? Sure, love is an emotion. We can say we love the people around us. I can say I love playing video games or watching Netflix, but the love of Christ calls us to a love that is shown in action. Love is what you do out of concern for others. Jesus' love is seen in this service to his disciples. What will this type of ministry to one another, washing feet, what will that look like for us here living in the 21st century? If we see our church as our tribe, our people, if we believe that we don't want to see anyone in need, if we believe in caring for one another and loving one another as our vision says, will we stand out as a group in this world, a community of people marked by love? Will we be a community of people marked by service to each other? Regardless of each other's social status here, regardless of each other's backgrounds or ethnicities, what will loving others look like here? You see, I know for me, we, we love I love when, when it's comfortable. Isn't that the temptation? That we'll only love when it's convenient for us? Love when it gratifies my desires? See, Jesus' love and service is driven by an other people's suddenness, looking to the joy and gratitude of others. Because you've received the greatest love and sacrifice and ministry from the one who matters. God himself has lowered himself to serve you. What a, what a wonderful truth. And we have to be clear, don't we? We could read this in isolation, out of context, and say, wash feet. Because Jesus does it. You should too. Wash feet. It's a good thing to do. Be like Jesus. But we have to be careful. When we look at other faiths, they'll say, be kind and serve others. Yet the heart motivation will often be different. Uh, some of you guys read that ABC article, and I want to refer to it again today. That ABC article was released in January where other faiths were interviewed. What does kindness look like in your faith? You can read it for yourself. They interview people from religions such as uh, Sikhism, Islam, Buddhism, Judaism. And most of them responded, kindness is driven by a command from Scripture or something that is good for you to do. It earns you merit. You know, and in my answer, when they interviewed me, I shared a different angle of kindness. The Christian faith tells a different story, doesn't it? The command to serve is driven not to earn merit or to be good before God. You've already been made good. You've been made righteous through the sacrifice and service of Christ. Christ has been kind to you in love and compassion. So our love, our kindness, our service to others... It's not driven by karma. It's not driven by uh, a way to earn our salvation, tick off a list of rules. It's driven by the same love that Christ has for you and I. The same love that he loved his disciples to the end with. It's driven from an identity that is anchored in knowing who you are as one of God's people. Saved, worthy, washed, clean, redeemed. And this passage, Jesus is saying, he has done it all for us to be washed clean now do as a response to your new life in here. How does that make you feel? That Jesus would lower himself as a servant to the point of giving his life for you. The creator has cleansed us of our guilt and shame. Our creator has cleansed us of our sin and brokenness. It's been washed away. Now, I'm not saying this to make you feel guilt trip, but it should bring us to a thankfulness and joy, shouldn't it? Our creator has saved us. 
We are called to serve out of a joy-filled, thankful heart, consumed by Christ's compassion for you and I. So what will modeling that sort of greatness look like in your life? A greatness that's driven by love, humble sacrifice, service to others. You know, and, and I know that the world and the Christian faith can be at odds at sometimes. You know, at, at times, like, I want to encourage you, yeah, pursue greatness in your field of work. But, you know, strive for excellence. Work hard. Have a hard work ethic. That's a good thing to have. But to pursue greatness as Christ calls us, let that be at the center in the way that we see the world around us. Your greatness isn't marked by how, the, how, how, how good you are at your job or how much money you have in the bank. Greatness is seen here in, in service. How you can use your power and privilege to serve others. To never let power and privilege be your end goal, but for our goal to always be the worship of God through our actions, through our speech. You know what the worship of God looks like? It looks like following Christ's example, as he calls us to. It looks like washing feet. And I can't tell you what that looks like practically. We have to figure that out. It's going to look different for everyone. But as Christ loved his people, look around this room. These are the people God has called you to love as well. Washing your feet might be giving people your time. It might be using your skills and talents to help others. It might be using your finances and resources to be generous to others. But there is no hierarchy here. No one here is in a greater social status that, you know, no matter how big your bank account is, no matter how awkward someone else might be here or less educated or less well-off, no one is beneath you. There is no job that should be beneath you as well. And I, I want to share a gripe I have here. There, there are some who have this ministry to provide, and that's great. I, I'm so thankful for people who are gospel partners with us who give generously to the work of the church. Uh, it's a great way to serve with your finances. But over the years, uh, and I, I speak from experience, I've observed that there are some who will give their money and they've done their good deed. And that's it. They dust their hands. Yes, give to God's work, be generous to the poor, but they've ticked the box. They've done just enough to pass. Is that really a sacrifice? You know, we can throw a few bucks and claim we follow Christ, but we won't sit with a broken. We'll throw some money some, you know, towards something, but we won't spend time with the hurting. We might not visit that brother or sister in Christ in hospital when they're suffering. Some won't give a phone call to the hurting. We won't offer to clean toilets, carry chairs, offer to give our time to help someone in need, maybe move house, put IKEA furniture together, whatever it might be, because it takes away precious hours from our weekend. And we might not think about it, but I know in our culture, in our society, we come to church with that same lens that we have in the workplace. And we think, hey, actually, that type of work at church, it's, that's not in my contract. <laughs> that type of service, mm, that's, that's below my pay grade. That type of church work, that's beneath me. Sometimes there are leaders who think, I'm a leader in this church. I don't need to do that menial work. You know, you know what the church should do? They should utilize the young people. <laughs> they have more time and no money. They're parasites who don't have you know, the financial means to provide. They can do that sort of lowly work in the church. And I look at myself, and I feel ashamed. And maybe this is you, but, but isn't it easy to say, I love Jesus. Isn't it easy to say, I follow Christ. I'll tell people proudly that I'm a Christian, yet when people examine my life, they'll struggle to even identify when I last showed kindness to another. They'll struggle to identify when I stooped low and got my hands dirty to help the broken around me. 
I'm not saying we do it for the recognition of, of men and women. I'm saying, can you remember yourself the last time you intentionally reached out in kindness and compassion to serve someone that might not be able to serve you back? Whether you made small or large sacrifices, you made them not because you were going to benefit from anything in your life in any way. Where you made sacrifices where it might even make others think lesser of you. It might have been social suicide, but you were willing to do so, to humble yourself and wash the feet of your fellow Christian, the one who Jesus loves as well. Or will we only serve when we think it's worth our time? Will we only serve when it's convenient for us, when it's beneficial to me, when it's within my comfort zone? I mean, anything else, don't ask me. Ask, me someone, ask someone else, it's, that work is beneath me. Come on now. Do you think Jesus had that sort of mindset when he served his disciples? When he spent time with lepers, lepers who were sick and infectious? When he spent time with the coronavirus patient? When he sat down with the, the broken prostitute and sat with the tax collectors who were judged and looked down on? That these people, because they were in a different social class to him, that they were beneath him and not worth his time? Jesus was willing to be punished for their sin. He was willing to be punished for your sin and my sin. Those people became his people. And he was willing to minister to their souls and to our souls. To serve us to the point of death. He loved us to the end. That's greatness. That's using his power and privilege for the good of others. Friends, you've been washed by the blood of Christ. He wants us to seek humility and service to one another regardless of who they are. Greatness looks like being the one who's willing to grab a towel and wash feet. We can't leave this Bible passage and say, I've heard this a million times, Mikey, and ignore how Jesus calls us to respond. If you are a disciple of Jesus, if you call yourself a Christian, this is part of who you are. Jesus asked you to be transformed. There's a great preach, preacher in the 1800s. His name was D.L. Moody, and he said this once, the Bible was not given for our information. It was given for our transformation. We have to ask God's Spirit to transform our hearts of pride and entitlement and to see others around us, your own church family, as people God has called us to sacrifice for, to serve in love, in joy, knowing the love and joy yourselves of being washed by your Lord Jesus. Let's pray.